0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Chit Heads podcast. My guest today is Genevieve Sophia Dow. Genevieve is a poet, novelist, playwright, and the director of the Sacra Theatre Company. She has been a Stegner Fellow at Stanford University and has published fiction with Penguin Books. An independent scholar, she is the founder of the philosophy of post-Daoism and the practice tradition of Moga Dao which incorporates original mythosomatic qigong forms and meditations and spiritualized asana in combination with academic studies in mythopoetics, comparative philosophy and religion, depth sexology, socioerotic and socio-political inquiry, and queer studies. A transgender woman, she is also the founder of the Transgender Necessity, a platform for public discourse, which underscores the cultural necessity of transgender individuals. So hello, Genevieve. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's an honor
1: to be with you. Thank you for asking me.
0: So I've been really enjoying and uh, being quite moved by um, my study of your work over the last few days. I've been listening to some of your just incredibly beautiful talks and lectures and conversations and practice sessions with your students and and some of the uh, public offerings that you've given, and your your work really does extend across a a wide range of topics, and so there's really kind of, you know, an infinite, seemingly infinite uh, amount of topics we could explore today, but I'm particularly interested in talking to you, especially about this larger context of of post-Daoism, which is sort of the philosophical backdrop of much of your work, and then also talk about um, mythopoetic sexuality and and the transgender experience, and so. But before we get into all that, all that juicy stuff, I'd love to hear a little bit about your own personal story and what has led you to this wide-ranging, beautiful work.
1: Well, there's so many so many portals that uh, we would take up the entire time, I think, to to actually answer that accurately. All of the different portals. I mean, every single ethos, we have this uh, paradigm called the Ethane, which is the plural of ethos, and there are seven of them, and each one is, has its own almost historical necessity. But I think for the purposes of um, this conversation, I, I can say that I was very, very sick with um, what nobody really knew back then was called chronic fatigue syndrome. This was Three decades ago, and um, and eventually I uh, despaired of Western medicine, and um, I went to seek out qigong in China. And uh, at the time, I was saturated in depth psychology in the work of Jung and Hillman, uh, above above all, and. I literally had a, a, a rucksack of all of these books. It was very impracticable. I was not well at all, and, and I had no energy, but I was still walking around with these books and trying to learn uh, this this thing called Qigong, which I had experienced very cursorily in America with an acupuncturist. And um, and basically, I I didn't find what I thought I was going to find in in that clinical Qigong, and I began to allow myself, without even knowing that I had given myself the permission, to create choreographies of insoling, insoling illness at the time, insoling the way in which I was feeling, and trying to move energy in my body according to honesty, somatic honesty, with what was actually going on in my organism. And looking back on it, I think what it was, was a rebellion against miracles. The uh, Qigong that that I was being presented with was basically a kind of miracle cure. And uh, I did not believe it. I didn't feel it. I didn't believe it. And the opposite of a conventional definition of miracle would be a deepening into reality and a making profound, or making sacred, what is actually going on. Not trying to transcend it at all, but the opposite, going so far into it. And of course, this ends up becoming its own kind of transcendence, and perhaps even its own kind of miracle, but that's another story. But I began to create movement, which now I call mythosomatic movement, In such a way that the body and the condition of the soul were somatically harmonized in a kind of abject truth telling of what the condition was at the time and in contradistinction to the miracle Qigong of the clinics, I began to heal in relationship to the honesty of this sacred choreography that I was making. And that was the beginning, and that has become literally something like 150 Qigong forms, all of which are specific to certain kind of archetypal or mythopoetic images uh, in flowing series that target different aspects of, of ontology and existence.
0: Well, I want to come back to this really beautiful idea of mythopoetic images, and um, because you, it's it's a cor- kind of core concept um, in your work, and I think it's such a beautiful kind of gateway into so much subtlety that's really beautiful to reflect on. But before we get into that, I want to ask you about this idea of post Daoism, which is also super fun. <laughs> uh, you know, it seems to structure the very backdrop of all of the work that you do, and. But how does this perspective um, transcend or rather build upon, or however you want to uh, describe it, traditional Taoist philosophy in such a way that it would kind of warrant this, um, this prefix of post being given to post-Taoism?
1: First of all, I want to say that Tao, traditional or inherited or classical, those are the three ways I describe historical Taoism. That was salvational for me. Uh, when I came across Taoism, it was absolutely life-changing because it it was a non-dogmatic structure, almost almost non-dogmatic, not quite, not quite. I mean, it has lines like "We suffer because we have a body," um, you know, which you know, it, it flirts with some notions of uh, ethics in a way that that can lead to to slightly dogmatized thinking, but it is the least, as far as my Life studies. It is the least dogmatic, and it is a it is a philosophy where inversions are encouraged. So you have things like um, stuttering is eloquence, for instance, and um, uh, the bowl, the famous uh, chapter where the bowl uh, is is not constituted by the structure of the ceramic or the wood, but by the air inside the bowl. And these were fascinating concepts as when I was a very young person. I came across them and they blasted open an instinct for paradox that I carried into my religious worldview. And it, it was salvational. So I just want to say that, but it, it, it I feel that that inherited Taoism is full of ghosts of longing. The notions of yin and yang, for instance, are such that they don't actually relate to what I call justified ontology and that there are, that, that my understanding of yin and yang actually goes almost in the face of, almost oppositionally to standard notions. For instance, um, a post-Daoist notion of the true yang is abject vulnerability. That's my understanding. So that when you are, when one is at their most yang, Y-A-N-G, not Y-O-U-N-G, when at their most yang um, state, they're actually in a world of total unknowing and an absolute vulnerability instead of the sort of inherited notion that the young is powerful and self-aware and confident in what, in in its own agency. And so we have a kind of inversion where the, in post-daoism, the truest young experience is very close to desperation. It's very close to a feeling of vertigo and and unknowing, and inconclusivity. And yet, all of those aspects are coupled with the intensity of participating anyway. So we could describe the the, the young in post-hours as vulnerability that does not cower under its own pressure, but continues to subsist in its endeavor. And that combination between continuing to 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 subsist in endeavor at the same time as the absolute nudity of unknowing becomes a new definition of what it is to be really, truly yam. And that's not in the inherited material, and yet that's my lived experience of that. And I could say the same thing about the yin, and these are just the most cursory aspects of post- Taoist definition. But one story that I just told yesterday that maybe I should tell again is a kind of rage that I experienced when I was reading the Chuang Tzu. And there's a very, very famous story in the Chuang Tzu, whereupon uh, a master's, I'm going to be super, super um, elliptical and and, uh, and, 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 uh, abbreviated in the story, but a master's wife dies and his pupil comes and finds him um, in the kitchen, sitting on the floor, banging on the underside of a pot and singing. And and the student says to the master, how is it that you can be singing when your wife just died? And the master gives this very cliched Taoist um, tale about how, you know, everything is everything else, and my wife is now merged with this and that and, and become all of the universe, and so why... You know, why not sing? And I understood when I read that, and this is a very bold and audacious thing to say, but of course it has to be, I understood that that was a lie, that that was a lie, that what was going on there is called grief. And that this man, this master sitting on the floor, banging on a kitchen pot and singing raucously is the the word in the translation, raucously, that is an image of the grotesquerie of grief. That is not actually an image of the mellifluous philosophical appreciation of the infinite harmony of life and death. It's actually a grief scene that we are being told is a sage scene, a, a scene of sage mm-hmm. teaching, a scene of sage understanding. And that is wrong. And the reason I think it's wrong is post In other words, harmony. In that scene is grief itself. That's the harmony. That's the ghost in the inherited Taoism of longing. That it, it doesn't say anywhere in there that really this man was grieving, and that is why he is cohering nature with humanity through the intensity of his feeling. He is cohering nature and human reality. It doesn't say that. It says that he's ab- above and beyond it, has a meta understanding in the moment of the loss and that is disingenuous and so because we know it's disingenuous because he's not making music he's screaming he's pounding he's banging on a kitchen pot for god's sake and the language that he's using is rockets and so he's in an atavistic childlike state he's been infantilized beautifully by his sorrow but the text doesn't own that truth and so what i am saying In post Taoism, in this tiny sort of parallelism that I'm making, I'm saying that it is the grief itself that makes the harmony, that makes the eternity in that moment. And that's a post Taoist addition and revisioning of that story.
0: Mm. I love that. That's such a great illustration, because it seems to suggest, um, if I understand you correctly, that this kind of perhaps overly intellectualist, Interpretation of Taoist philosophy might suggest that something like grief or, you know, these other messy human emotions with just the right, you know, perspective would be negated, right? And so it seems like post-Taoism, as you're describing, it, is suggesting kind of a radical affirmation that embraces the complexity and the messiness of, of human sensual and sensitive experience.
1: That's, that's well put, Jacob. And what I've done with post taoism is I've actually made a systematic, I call it, uh, it's, a, it's a zodiacal cosmology of five realms theory. And I've taken the beautiful system of five element theory, but I've moved it entirely into these valuations of what you're calling the messiness. And I've delineated aspects of each organ and each element and called it a realm instead of an element and delineated how that like, like for instance, grief is under the metallic realm. When you study the charts in Chinese medicine, when it says metal relates to grief, which it does in traditional five element theory, it doesn't say what I'm saying, which is that grief is a great Human attribute, even a skill, even an art, must learn in order to harmonize the organ with experience. It doesn't say that. It says that it implies that grief is the emotion within this elemental system and it is something to be dealt with, something to be gotten over, something to be medicalized in a way. And so this notion of I mean even your adjective of messiness, I agree with totally, but if you and I were in uh, well it's funny to be meta like that I was about to say if you and I were in a living room conversation, but I guess we are you know i would I would question us both and say is it really messy or is that itself a prejudice against against the intensity of human being that we that we carry over from these inherited philosophies of of survival rather than penetration into existence
0: exactly wow, that's beautiful. I, I loved the the phrase uh, grief as an art. I feel like you need to do a, a talk with that title at some point <laughs> um, So you know we're talking about post-daoist philosophy and and kind of what it boils down to, which I think is incredibly beautiful um, and but you you refer to moga Dao quite a bit as a practice tradition. So I'm curious, you know, we've talked about Qigong and obviously there's a role for Qigong there, but I was wondering if you could kind of briefly outline what some of the practices are that derive from this kind of post-Daoist Moga Dao course of study. I think we
1: we can go back to the, your original question and my answer, because it started with disappointment. And I went to Qigong to heal in a kind of ordinary sense of the word, which would mean to make my organism feel more viable to lived experience. And that's why I went there, but it didn't happen. And what happened instead was the creation of movement that was mythopoetic, meaning that the sensations of the choreography related directly to my emotional reality, and then by extension, the state of my soul. And so if we fast forward all of these years, the the creation of the Qigong practices, again, there's something like 150 original Qigong forms now based on this understanding. Each one of them is, is making an art form in air, in space. It's a sculpting of air through the human body, And that is corresponding to the capabilities of Five Realms Theory. So within Five Realms Theory, we have negative capabilities, which are unpleasant, seeming, but powerful and necessary, like grief. And then there are affirmative capabilities, which I've outlined all along this Zodiac. And they're just more comfortable, but no less powerful. And... And so the the Qigong forms, I suppose the best way that I can describe it is that they grant one courage toward those capabilities. That's what I mean by a mythosomatic practice. The soma, the physical sensation of the experience directly relates to the necessary mythology that is going on in the soul of the practitioner. And, and the forms are geared toward different types of ontology. And so, so one studies within the ithei, the ithei are the, the categories, and they, they are you know, mythopoetics is a category, human fragility is a category, uh, gender and essence theory is a category, the, the spirituality of movement itself is a category, death sexuality is a category, and the uh, socio-political dimension Is a category, and with each one of those categories, there are specific mythosomatic forms that engender, in the practice, in the practitioner, the courage to participate in life mythopoetically through these capabilities that I've just mentioned.
0: Let's talk about one of these categories that I've that I've mentioned and you've mentioned, which is <clears throat> the mythopoetic. Um, you know, anyone who's who's listened to you either now or during one of your talks can perceive quite quickly that you have a beautiful way with words, and um, you are a poet and a writer. And so, the role of poetry and expression has obviously um, quite uh, radically shaped um, your experience. It seems. So what is this notion of the mythopoetic image and why is an understanding of the role of this image so important to a fully lived life?
1: I'm at odds with the materialist view of health. The idea that we have this organism that needs the right nutrients and um, all the right atmospheres, the right trainings, and then we will have a good life. I'm not denying the physicality of the body, but I'm 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 against that materialistic. It's very, very rampant today, you know, this notion that if you just work out and eat well, that you're going to have a great life. And it's very sorrowful, the superficiality of that. And so I try to define wellness um, in terms of the capacity of profundity as opposed to the sustainability of an organism through duress. Yeah. And, and, and so everything that I'm teaching is about profundity. And what is profundity? And how does profundity function? And it functions through image, through the soul's making of images. And you're so right to bring up the emphasis of poetry and of art. I mean, basically, I, I don't really believe that human beings um, can exist health healthily without an aesthetic an artful perspective on being. Yeah. I don't think it's just like one kind of person. Like I'm an artistic person. That's what I do. So-and-so is not. And they don't need that. I don't agree with that. The soul is an artist in all of us and the life is a canvas in all of us. And, and so what, what, The mythopoetic image is is related to desire. It is related to the initial innocent desire of a human being as they come into the intersection of the challenge of of society. And the reason why these images, and what what I mean by that is, well, let's just talk about you. (laughs) I'm just meeting you now. You, you you, You have to have a mythopoetic image of someone who is capable of eliciting truth from your interlocutors, that you have a sense of yourself, you must have a sense of yourself as a keen listener that is able to grab the little strands, the little filaments of conversation and turn them into gold for your listeners. And you carry that image, that that image of the listener, that image of the intellect that wants to perceive more deeply, that wants to abet someone else's intelligence help them to become more clear. You must carry that through your world as you prepare, as you do everything that you do in your life. That is your image, one of your images. I mean, I'm saying something about you, not knowing you, but it has to be. There's no way you can sustain the work that you do. I mean, you're not doing it just to make money. You have, you're not doing it just to become famous. You have an image of what that person is doing in the world. And that's a soul's image that is being broadcast outward onto your personality in order for it to exist. And we all have that. And the problem, and and this is why it's important to have a practice that supports that, is that, strangely, culture is not interested in the sharpness of individuals' images of themselves because those images are too renegade. They're too eccentric to be marketed, basically. And so we have a war going on between poetry of the individual and a society organized on conformity. Those two things are fighting against each other all the time. So one's mythos, as a teenager, say, um, uh, comes up. I mean, let's just say someone is uh, delicate and someone's a male and delicate, and florid, and they have an image of themselves, a soul. They've read about how Rainer Maria Rilke walked around uh, Vienna with a flower in his hand when he was a teenager, with a flower, literally, literally, Jacob. Rainer Maria Rilke walked around the flower. Now, that's a mythopoetic image that was giving him courage in order to be a poet of the most delicate sensitivity of his generation. And let's say there's some boy that's read about that and he goes to a party with a flower, you know, in Chicago or somewhere. And people say terrible things to him. And, and and he puts his flower away and tries to come back with a football helmet or with a six pack of beer to try and to try and make it make it okay to belong. And so his mythopoetic image recedes and shrinks. And and your question of why is it important to have an education of mythopoetry poetry is because if that boy can survive those terrible years and come into a teacher or a teaching or read a book or something of a friend that supports that flower-bearing image, then he has a chance to live a fulfilled life. But if he doesn't, he does not. And that's where my teaching is radical. I don't think it's fulfilling to join the sickness of the conformity in society. I think it's only fulfilling follow those deepest images, but they are so hard to follow in a violent society. And so the work that I have created is a prayer to help people to turn back and down instead of out and up toward the the poetic images.
0: Mm. So beautiful. Yeah. What you're, what you're saying is reminding me of um, <clears throat> uh, something else that I heard in one of your interviews and in one of your lectures. when you talk about this really wonderful phrase, the perversion of normalcy or the perversion that is normalcy, um, which kind of in the spirit of the the inversions that, you know, have inspired you in Taoism is kind of, y- you brought up as the, <clears throat> the inversion of the cultural assumption that transgender is some somehow a sort of perversion, and you flip that on its head and talk about um, the way in which normalcy is a perversion of of the expression or the possibility of expression of each soul, which I just thought i mean it 's one of the most beautiful moments in in that particular lecture and and so <clears throat> and i love I also love just what you mentioned about the soul each soul has an artist, I love the idea. That we, rather than thinking like, well, there are some souls that are artists, you know, few individuals, those are the artists over there, the ones that are making a living doing it. And to really entertain what is the soul's essential creativity um, and and how does that manifest um, outside limitations or constraints of social conditioning is such a fruitful kind of um, thought experiment for everyone. Now I want to kind of, I want to continue talking about this, but as it relates to sex and sexuality, which you talk about really um, courageously in your work um, and particularly about Eros and the erotic. Um, And, you know, this inclusion of the erotic uh, to me at least represents a kind of embrace of sexuality as an important facet of the spiritual life. Whereas it seems like in contemporary society, the erotic is often conflated or confused with the sexual. Um, and so I'm wondering if you see a difference between these two concepts or if, if, you, if they're not so different, but in, in, in the sense of how they relate to each other.
1: They're overlapping, but they're not um, mutually defining. But let me go back to what you said about Sexuality, And let me talk about my faith in sexuality, even beyond the erotic. But let me just go more dangerously into a faith, a religious faith, in sexuality that I have. And that pervades the studies of sexuality within the Moggadar tradition. And it's basically in line with what I just said about the soul. Desire is perhaps, the most vilified concept in the history of human consciousness. And I don't understand why there aren't many, many more thinkers who bring a religious understanding to desire. The, if we believe that the human being longs, as a religious recourse, longing is, is, I mean, I'm basically becoming a philosopher of longing, Jacob. That's really, as a philosopher, to try, and, to try and reinstitute the nobility of longing. And if we can imagine that desire is longing to be, that our desire is longing to find the people and the circumstances that are going to authenticate our lives. We move away from Freud and the notion that sex is a drive. And that's a Freud is a very, very dark consciousness in that way. The idea that there's this wild um, beast that we are somehow tethered to that is going to do terrible things from our unconscious and that we have really, the only thing we can do it, do, do with it is to train it as as diligently as we can to control it and so it doesn't do bad things or say bad this is, this is a horrific um, place to begin in terms of human desire. And I, I, I disagree with sexuality as a drive. And I know it's not very, very popular to imagine something outside of that. But instead, I believe that sexuality begins as a longing to express what I call the blueprint of one's soul. And that the the people and the circumstances, even the sensations that we long for, are coded within us originally. They are kind of original virtue. So I'm obviously turning original sin on its head by saying that the soul itself has original virtue. And that original virtue is desire. And that desire is the commitment of the ego, in the positive sense of the ego, is the commitment of the ego to find its experiences that it needs. So that when we long for coupling or experimentation, we are not just scratching itches, but we're, we're playing around in the darkness of our atavistic primordial drives. Instead, we're doing something far more holy which does not mean that it is puritanical. That's very important. In fact, sometimes the risks of sexuality have to be completely um, frightening in, in terms of following the line of their truth. But my point is that it is the soul's voice that makes us desire, and that is the long road to authenticity. So sexuality, as I teach it, is the risk of becoming authentic as opposed to Trying to navigate some force that is ultimately devastating and beyond our control. Mm.
0: So then, uh, if you're defining sexuality in that way, does that broaden the scope of what we would consider sexual to extend beyond simple acts of physical sex? If it, if it, if it's a reaching towards living authentically, does that then mean that the sexual for you is something more expansive than simply? Um, the physical expression of sex.
1: Well, then that question beautifully leads me to the, the the way in which these these streams make an estuary together and they mix. But that longing, I guess what, what I've tried to do is sort of democratize desire in my, in my teaching by saying that the longing that one feels when one meets someone and they... And a charge runs through one's entire organism because of the way they, the way they canted their head when they were listening to some brilliant lecture, you know, or the way they walked when they got up, how they stood up, or how they handled, you know, looking at fruit in a market, how they lifted each one up and put it down in a different place, and and you started to fall in love with them because of that. But those feelings are are equal to the feeling of seeing a scientist you know, work at her laboratory and. At two o'clock in the morning, you know, and, and, and seeing a film about that or just passing a window at night when, when there she is with her test tubes and falling in love with the image and wanting to become that. That desire is uniform. What I'm saying, Jacob, that sex is one thing over here that's bad. And then all of these other desires to fulfill ourselves are, are good and condonable. That they're, they're of the same makeup. And when, and when we, we talk about the erotic, the erotic is the soul's, in my definition, the erotic is the, is the soul's insistence on experiencing itself in the world, and that is manifold, and it certainly transcends, quote, sexual acts, and it has to do with mutual needs, and, and that can happen in, in the smallest ways, like the way in which we have the tiniest. Interactions. I mean, have you ever? I'm sure you have, and I'm sure every listener has. Has someone ever saved saved your your life on a particular day because they said, you know, the way in which you you said that, I love that, and, and you're a stranger, but your eyes shine. You know, that's a that's a socio erotic world where we're helping each other to define ourselves as ourselves, and so it, it certainly goes way beyond. The sexual act, but I want to make sure that that doesn't become a hierarchy where upon actual sexual contact is somehow a building block for something higher. I teach against that. There's a democracy in what I'm talking about because the, sexual, the sexuality between two people is the theater by which they risk discovering through each other, their own authenticity. And that is not something to be graduated from into, quote, higher states of human being. In my
0: world. Yeah, I really appreciate that you came back to that because, um, I mean, obviously it builds upon what you were saying a moment ago about Freud, which I really appreciated. I haven't heard someone put it quite like that, this idea that, um, you know, sexuality is a dark beast that needs to be controlled. It, it sort of makes me ponder whether or not there's some kind of family resemblance between that, albeit secular position, but nonetheless a a kind of maybe fundamentalist Christian one where, you know, the kind of body is sort of the, you know, cesspool of sinful nature that needs to be transcended for something higher. And so, you know, that's why I appreciate what what you're saying, that it's not that, that the erotic is somehow above and beyond and more sophisticated, as it were, th- uh, than kind of the the more physically sexual, but rather that that the sexual can kind of take on perhaps a, a deeper resonance and significance if kind of, if our perception of it or our approach to it is sort of saturated with this larger kind of erotic ethos. I
1: mean, what if we educated
0: people that the bedroom was a theater,
1: for brave people to find out who they are through the risks that they were experiencing sensually with each other. What if that was what sex was in the common education? Wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah. And, and that's what I try to impart through the erotic basis of being program of the death sexuality work. And and what you said also about enjamming, bringing together, um, Freud, who would be considered passionately secular with the, the fundamentalism, I think is really true. And that takes us back to Plato and the, the Platonic idea of another world having forms that are more superior. I mean we remember from philosophy classes the the, the doctrine of absolute forms, you know that that for every chair that exists in the world there's a, a great chair. <laughs> so, and our chair is only as beautiful or as comfortable or as aesthetic as it, as it relates to that, that, that dematerialized chair someplace else. And it's very hard to honor the, um, the flesh and the intelligence of the flesh, which is the intelligence of the sensitivity as it relates to the desire. It's very hard to honor that in a tradition. But... In, in a Western tradition that begins with, with those kind of Greek ideas of which both Freud and uh, Christianity have followed, consciously or unconsciously. But here's the thing that brings us back to the original conversation, Jacob. So there we are in the West, okay? And we are abandoned by Plato and we're abandoned by Freud and we're abandoned by fundamental Christianity. And we can continue the list. We are abandoned. When I, when I mean When I say abandoned, Our ontology, our lived ontology, is not justified by those philosophies. Like when I'm making love, quote, I, meaning everyone, and my soul is actually becoming braver as I experience the interchange of my fluids and my tears and my abject need and my honesty, as that's going on, that is, I'm not some beast trying to become the top in the herd. At that moment, I'm not trying to kill my father, quote, as Freud would say, in that moment. I'm, I am trying to be authenticated in my most honest place so that my life feels more true. And that's what's going on in bed in that moment. But if we are abandoned by these philosophies, what do we do? Well, what we do is we go east. We go east. We go east to Eastern religion. We try to find something that's more sustainable. And so if we go to Taoism, we breathe easy for a couple of moments. We feel a little better. But my point with post-Taoism is we don't feel well enough because of what we talked about about a half an hour ago, that within inherited or classical Taoism, there's a slight reprieve from these Western narrowings these Western uh, impingements, but it doesn't flower open into a real justified ecology, which says that my vulnerability in sexuality is harmony, or my grief over loss is harmony, or my sense of feeling inferior in this moment is the beginning of my greatness and becomes harmony. It doesn't. It doesn't push that hard into being, and so I have felt obliged to try and revision what Taoism might look like if it was to actually provide an ontology
0: that these failures in the West that you pointed out don't provide. Mm. So nicely said. So, you know, we're talking about um, uh, kind of this, I don't know if ideal is the right word, but sort of a a more liberative picture or portrait of of the the, the possible erotic life. But I kind of like to speak more um, directly to what you see as being kind of the obstacles to that in terms of our own attitudes about sex, the symptoms in our society that are expressed, the symptoms of a, a kind of disease that are expressed in our attitudes about sex insofar as you see it. And the inspiration for this question comes from something that you had mentioned in one of your, um, interviews or talks—I can't quite remember which—where you remark that our our time, uh, sexuality in our time is at once extremely prudish, or our time is at once extremely prudish and hypersexual. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that, and 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 what you think this kind of polarized attitude about sex, sexuality, is sim- symptomatic of in our culture, and and what we can kind of do about it to move towards this erotic ideal that we're discussing?
1: That's a thick question. I'll do best. <laughs> um, I stand by what I said about that strange um, situation of prudishness, backdrop against obsession with everything, especially within within the availability of pornography. But if we think that if we go back to my definition, that Our job is to refine our sexuality to the point where it's actually speaking from the soul so that my desires are not generic desires, but they're very particular. If we go go back to that, that's where I can say that we're prudes in this society because we have all of these generic actions. Let's say that somebody has a body and a throat that has a, a voice of longing within them that is, is, meant to, is meant to come out in their expression of their sexuality. But they are inundated with the three or four sounds that are acceptable from pornography that are supposed to be sexy, right? They, they can't live down into the actual rawness of what it is that their organism wants to express, wants to be, because they have been brainwashed. And, and so we have a situation where they're not really as sexual, as they should be, because they're not actually authentic in their expression. And so I think we have a society that is on the outside hypersexualized, but on the inside actually very distant from soul itself, which is really the only place of sex. It's the only place. And so it is a huge gap between the two of them that we're living, in. and it's very seductive, because the more quote sexual that one can be you know the more experimental the more indifferent to the pain of loss of emotion you know the generations growing up i think they think they're pretty they're pretty hot i think that, i think they think they're pretty um pretty sexy but but i don't think they are when everything is a hookup and there's no risk of what is actually being being asked from sexuality, I mean, if, if I'm correct and if desire is the wish to show someone the very architecture of why you were born and to risk them liking it and kissing it and tasting it, if I'm correct in that, then it's pretty damn dry and banal to just do sexual acts indifferently with people you don't even feel or smell or care about.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, as a gay man living in New York City, <laughs> I have certainly, um, you know, I think in, in the gay community, there is obviously a, 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 what we would call sex positivity. And yet, and of course, this is a generalization, but I think that there is in the kind of embrace of hookup culture, there has been, um, a little bit of a lack of, or an increasing lack of genuine authentic connection. And then the whole way, I know you've talked about pornography before, but the whole way that pornography then kind of shapes the aesthetics of a sexual encounter is such that, you know, you can almost, when you're having sex with certain people, sometimes you can almost feel them having sex through the camera lens. It's like, they're not actually genuinely connecting with you. They're sort of, um their Their whole kind of perception of the experiences is, is translated through how it might look on camera or in the mirror, which is just a, an incredibly distant non intimate sort of um experience and 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 seems to me like it really does not allow for the possibility of of what really a genuine sexual connection can be
1: and let's look at that word genuine because I don't want anyone to misunderstand me. And thinking of tame and restricted and uh, you know behaviors, I, I I fall in this really subtle, often difficult intersection where you know where, I'm, where i where I'm trying to speak from a mythopo- mythopoetic point of view sexually, and those desires are often out of sync with anything that society might call proper. And I'm the champion, as long as people are not dehumanized by those, I'm the champion of that. And so I'm not speaking about some kind of prudery, but I am speaking about intimacy. But again, intimacy doesn't necessarily have to be cozy. Intimacy can be cozy and that's very beautiful. But intimacy is also the brave uh, union of two people that are carrying each other into territories where they know they need to live and couldn't do it without the other one. That is a, that's a phenomenal intimacy. But it can't be indifferency. That's the thing. That I not think there's anything that can be considered profound if it's actually Indifferent. I don't care if it's an orgy. I don't care if it's one person that you want to marry. There there has to be a specificity that brings your life to that moment, whatever that moment is. There has to be a specificity that brings you there if you're going to have a, a soulful experience.
0: So, you know, it seems relatively obvious based on what we're talking about that there is some spiritual significance to sex and sexuality, um, especially given how ecstatic it can be and and how for some people perhaps it's, um, you know, a a taste of ecstasy that is not available in other aspects of their lives. So now I kind of want to ask the million dollar question, which of course comes up or or at least I think should come up when we're talking about sexuality as it relates to spiritual communities, traditions, practices, in that you know there's obviously a lot of pain and trauma in spiritual communities as a result of the abuse of power and sexual abuse that has happened at the hands of mostly, although not exclusively, male gurus. And so this history obviously has informed our contemporary moment where there is an understandable hesitation around an embrace of our sexuality in spiritual communities and conversations. And then, you know, alongside that and an accounting of that, there's also, you know, the Me Too movement and the recognition that women have, you know, throughout their lives um, been um, in a constant uh, uh, state of fear of sexualized violence in various ways. And, and so, you know, with, you know, just taking that and, and making that, um, bringing that to the surface, I'm wondering how you think we can reconcile this history of sexual abuse and trauma with the continued need to explore the relationship between our spirituality and our sexuality.
1: Well, l- let me just answer it in the most personal way possible, which is, again, I think extremely at odds with convention. I think the only way to really address what you're talking about is to have an understanding that sexuality in the way that I speak about it is not about conventional power at all. And that's where things go bad because if, if there's a spiritual community where that is, that is not, absolutely understood that truth that power and sexuality i mean somebody would say to me you know how can you say that you know how can you say that power and sexuality are are really not communicating to each other in some way and this is where post daoism jacob is so helpful because if we think of the the yang definition that i just mentioned for instance that that one is at the height of their young expression when they are most lost when they are attempting something but in confusion and in uncertainty then the relationship of sexuality as being something to wield over someone else disappears because it's much more interesting to be in bed with an equal that is going to challenge you and ask of you to be that vulnerable as opposed to notch your stick with conquest because of a certain social dynamic that affords you to do so. And, and so I don't know how to face the societal problem because I don't think people teach sexuality per se from the point of view that I do in this way of it not being something to exercise over someone, but rather almost the opposite, a place of of a, almost a regression back into the deeper honesties of one's vulnerable self. And so the whole culture of a sexuality practice, if it's to be healthy, it seems to me needs to have an understanding of that, or else it's going to imitate too much the consumeristic uh, paradigm of sexuality as another attribute of power, like wealth, like height, like whiteness, like what have you. And that needs to be totally destroyed in spiritual communities. And the problem, again, is that then what often happens in spiritual communities is that sexuality gets anesthetized and removed, which creates the shadow for the drives that come up when the soul is abandoned. It's not that I think that there's no such thing as sexual drive, but what I think is that the mythopoetics of being needs to be strong enough so that it actually overtakes the drive mechanism and becomes something deeper and more profound. I suppose we are probably still involved in a kind of evolution, which is a sort of dialogue between drive and mythopoetry. And I'm on the side of trying to grow us into mythopoetry in an amoral sense, not an immoral sense but an amoral sense because the soul is amoral and trying to move culture into an understanding that sex doesn't need to be pushed outside of the spiritual path on the one hand, but nor can it be made a consumeristic uh, form of leverage over other people that obeys a dynamic, say of power within a governing body or a tradition, a spiritual tradition. It can't exist there either because it's this other thing it has much more to do with honesty.
0: Your answers are so graceful <laughs> and beautiful. So I really appreciate that response, and um, and especially appreciate that you know you're you're pointing to kind of the larger need for to get back to kind of the foundations almost of of the cultural education around what sexuality is as it relates to. Intimacy and vulnerability
1: that and, and the reason it can be hijacked again and I have to insist on it is that it that, that sex is either demonized and removed from sexual community or there's a, a way in which it is considered another attribute of conventional power or we have a hyper sex positivity where it is celebrated, um, for and unto itself, in a hedonistic way, as its own value, just by virtue of its sheer enactment. I don't think, see. I have a different definition of sex positivity, as you might imagine. Sex positivity is just not celebrating the possibility of of um, exuberant uh, Fuck it. fucking. <laughs> I mean, I mean, that's, you know, fine, I suppose. But, but to be really positive, uh, in, in my definition, would be a faith in desire that is so great. It's too safe. It's so funny. These, these communities that are like, you know, uh, radically uh, hedonistic are not very risky, actually. It's not very hard to, you know, have sex with a different person seven days a week for a year. That doesn't really happen ask much of anybody it doesn't there's no risk involved in that but but if you if you feel someone because you you need them in a certain way and 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 you move toward them that and, and they could reject you and could hurt you then sex becomes exciting
0: yeah yeah so beautiful so now i would love to transition to our, our last kind of topic um which i think will kind of segue beautifully from what we've been talking about, which is um, the the transgender question. And um, obviously you yourself are a transgender woman, and uh, uh, you've talked extensively about the role of transgender experience, or rather the way in which transgender experience and transgender identity can transform society, not just for transgender people, but actually for all of us. And, and so I feel like that's expressed Quite directly in the very um, name of your platform, the transgender necessity. So, will you talk just to begin? Will you, will you um, uh, uh, um, define for us what the transgender necessity is? It's a
1: platform that I've created, and as soon as COVID uh, honors itself <laughs> enough to to let itself uh, to let us go, I'm going to be speaking. All over the place, wherever I am invited on this on this question, because one of the great beauties of um, of being uh, targeted terribly by a transphobic commentary, one of the gifts of that is that I understand how how sad the society is on um, how sad, how lost, uh, because to experience so much so much hatred uh, is, of course, to experience it coming from a deep sadness, a deep well of sadness. And what is that sadness? And that sadness is not having the tools, I'm speaking about the society, not having the tools to be what I call self-othering, to be other to oneself, to be caught in prescribed modes of behavior and to have to live through them all of your life in order to be viable. And transgender people, are, they've gone through the tragedy of not being able to do that in, in, in our different ways. We're, whatever we are as trans, we have gone through a certain tragedy of the inability to toe a line of civilization in order to survive. We can't do it. The voices, the mythopoetic voices, our bodies, our desires, they're too strong. And, and so every trans person is kind of heroic in their tenacity to listen to the dissonance that has been going on with them, like I am not myself. A trans person has to say that. The self that I am enacting, the self that I am pantomiming is not my real self. And what I'm saying about the transgender necessity is that it is people who are experts in that feeling that can be helpful for the rest of culture because the rest of culture is also saying the same thing. I am not myself. This is not my real job. I'm going through my 10th year in this marriage, but I long for another marriage. I am living another marriage. This is not my marriage. I'm living another marriage. And and the ability to say um, I am limited because of the definitions that society has superimposed upon me and I am dying. Trans people we we've, we've been through that. And so when we walk through the world, we remind people of the fear that they have of themselves. And that's where the hatred comes. It's really self-hatred. Someone says, you know, to me, you, I mean, I I got a, a sentence from someone that says, how dare you be a spiritual teacher? You are so fucking unstable to have three names in three years. And that's a direct quote that I received. And that person is, is beautiful. They're beautiful, Jacob, because they're crying out. Through villainizing me, they're, they're crying out and saying, I am so many people inside. God damn it. How dare you, deign, D-E-I-G-N. How dare you, deign? be that honest with yourself you mother right that's what's going on there and and they're beautiful they're 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 suffering and they want desperately to say i was bob but now i'm ann now i'm (laughs) lacy now i'm you know right i mean that's that's going on but instead they're towing the line and holding their bodies in exactly the same disposition that they were taught to hold them in high school you know, moving in bed the way they were told to talk by porn and saying sentences that they were, they were taught to say by uh, sitcoms and, and interviews with crass uh, show, talk show hosts. You know, they're living a life that is murdering them. And so a trans person comes along and says, I was this person, but it wasn't really true. And, and now I'm true. And here I am. Will you have me? Will you you look at me? Will you you take me? Will you you see me? And, And they say, hell no, I won't, because to look at you is to look at my fear, that I am a bundle of fear. And so the transgender necessity is me putting myself in situations. I mean, I plan to, if I'm invited, to go talk to religious, conservative religious groups and universities and all kinds of places where people are troubled by this and and try and and explain that trans people are hopeful that, that we are hopeful and helpful and and we've been through things that that they're afraid to even begin to go through and that we should be reminders of how it is that they are avoiding themselves and therefore avoiding a significant life.
0: It's interesting that you're the, this person had seen instability in the transformation of a name because, you know, it just makes me kind of think about how many, in so many spiritual traditions, there is kind of a tradition of, of getting a new spiritual name when one kind of is initiated into a new stage of life. And, and it's, you know, there's this idea like, D, I think, embedded in that, that when one is is renamed or given a new name or gives himself a new name, that it is sort of a liberating gesture, uh, not a a sign of instability. It it, it actually makes me think of a friend of mine. This is kind of a funny story. A friend of mine has done a few um, ayahuasca ceremonies, and during one of them, he always likes to talk about how he had this very visceral experience of seeing his name as a program, Right, that his name is, uh, well, I won't give his name just in case he's listening. <laughs> Maybe he doesn't want people to know he's doing uh, ayahuasca. <laughs> and then, um, so. <laughs> so, you know, and he just saw, you know, it's like he heard and saw, like for the first time, it's like he heard and, and saw his name as almost like a computer generated program. And in one of your talks as well, you talk about how this the significance of the experience of actually seeing your birth certificate with genevieve sophia dao and how transformative that was for you and and you know all of this just kind of brings up this question of like what is in a name and and what is this the kind of spiritual significance what is potentially liberative but also potentially enslaving about a name
1: yes well you're again you're asking questions of course here obliquely referencing Shakespeare as you go. And I just want to say, because there's such a, um, I'm smiling. You can probably hear the smile in my microphone, but I, I just want to give the listeners the image of a spiritual teacher running around with a birth certificate and jumping up and down. (laughs) You have such a, there's such a pedantry, you know, such a pedantry, such a, a stultification of, um, Childish joy within so many spiritual um, endeavors and uh, colon see me then running around my house and holding this thing and not letting it go like it's a linus blanket that says yes you know my mytho poetry has reached society they are one and the same and uh, and that's what's happening but I want to address something because you're pointing out an interesting irony but I want to I want to deconstruct it a little bit. You mentioned um, this tradition within many uh, spiritualities of being bestowed a name and how that seems to be okay. And I, I want to talk about that because ultimately the comfort I think that people have in that is patriarchal. And the reason that there's such a rebellion against someone like me is that it's my inner authority, And that is something that that Christians have always challenged me with in particular, the phrase on whose authority, right? If I say that this is valuable, right? If I say that sex is soulful, if I say that grief is holy, on whose authority? Because that's the platform that uh, fundamentalists come on. And there's a little bit of residue in the examples that you're giving that if one is given a name from an authority in a patriarchal structure, I mean, even if it is now, uh, we have a couple of females squeezed in to those roles, we're still talking about a patriarchal structure in most of these um, religious organizations, whether they're Eastern or Western, someone gives you a name. Well, there's an inbred safety in that in terms of not claiming too much intimacy with yourself. But if you say... I am this person and that I'm no longer this person. I'm this person. And as I delve more into life and I understand the deeper voices, I'm this person now and I'm going to name it myself. That is an audacity that strikes the anger cord in the repressed psyche of the society, whereas being bestowed in a safe patriarchal culture is not. And that's where, that's where that irony succeeds that you're bringing up. And, and this notion of naming. I mean, this, this notion that we have a job to do, which is to articulate articulate our basic instincts of soul. Isn't it wonderful to turn that phrase basic instinct on its head and turn it into a mythopoetic program of authenticity instead of a, a snarling kind of scary impulse? So we have a job to do. And if a name helps that, well, then by God, use it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I I was always, I've I've, I've never like changed my name, but I've always in different periods of my life switched from Jacob to Jake. And at one point I was going by Grace and Hunter. (laughs) That was going to be, that was. That was going to be my stage name for a certain, uh, for a bit, but people kept telling me it sounded like a porn name, so I gave it up.
1: Oh, oh, so be careful, though. I mean, this is certainly not my context to, to be like this, but be careful. That's exactly what happened to the young boy who took his flower to the party in high school that I talked about, right? Yeah. And you can't do that. I mean, I don't know what you want to name yourself. You are Jacob and you are you know, whatever you want to be, but be careful. If somebody says that's what that's a porn name, you say, you know what, there's something deeper in that maybe. And then you can redefine that name for other people. And then they can disassociate from their own pornography minds. I mean, that's the way it goes. That's the social eros of taking responsibility that when one person claims, and this is what I want for the transgender necessity. I want trans people to have a noble platform where they are seen as powerfully self-determined people as people who have been through the crises of the intersection that you just just named which is pressure from without putting putting a different twist on an instinct and 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 transgender people are here to say i have survived that in a big big way and and I love, I mean, I love all of those names. And isn't it amazing to contemplate the somatic and musical resonance differentiation between Jacob and Jake? Like what those two things evoke, they're, they're very, very different. Or what you want to claim and make them. And it's so fascinating. Even just the vocalization. Jacob, the, the way the B, you know, is like this little after sound. Jacob, Jacob that says, I'm thoughtful. Whereas Jake... Says, I think, you know, one thing a more a more uh, decisive, you know, it, 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 it these are mythopoetic um, accoutrements, you could
0: say, to name. Yeah, absolutely. It sort of reminds me. I feel it, it makes me think of the, you know, the Indian tradition of mantra and and the way in which, you know, like a name is like a mantra that you kind of repeat to yourself, and it has a sort of physiological and psychological resonance and vibration that coalesces as a certain kind of experience. And, um, and I mean, certainly for me, like just switching between just the two, two versions of my same name was, it, it allowed me, I just felt like a different person at different parts of my life. and 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 just switching between the two allowed me to, in some sense, honor that, that feeling of a shift.
1: Oh, that's just reality. That's so true, to walk out into the world as Genevieve, my body changes. I mean, since, the, since, since I changed my name, I've lost more muscle mass. I've streamlined my muscularity. I've, it's not just hormone therapy. It's the consciousness of Genevieve, Genevieve-ness in the world. It's, it's changed my morphology. Literally, it has shaped me because of its permission.
0: Mm, Beautiful. Well, this has been such an incredible conversation. I could talk to you all day, and I'm sure we'll talk again in the future. I love to bring people back for second episodes. But before we end our uh, lovely conversation, I wanted to give you an opportunity to perhaps talk a little bit about where the listeners can find you, websites, um, and if you want to share any events or workshops or courses that are coming up uh, that you'd like the listeners to be aware of
1: you can go to mugadaoinstitute.com m o g a d a o institute.com and uh everything that that's going on is there there are classes that i teach um online now and i teach major workshops and that's all there there are also a lot of Mogadal teachers, people that uh, certify with me through a rigorous training program. And they are listed on the website under the teachers page. And they teach classes as well. So you can um, find us there. Jacob, it's such an honor to speak with you and to be asked to speak about such um, such important and tender things. Thank you so much for inviting me along.
0: Thank you. Yeah, it's been really a beautiful conversation. And we've, we've ventured into really unknown territory um, in terms of the history of this podcast. And it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, so much wonderful, insightful um, teachings that you share. So thank you so much for the work that you do. And uh, I look forward to speaking with you soon.
1: I hope so. Thank you so much again.